Hey, what is up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of This Show Is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me connect as we and what that means for all of us. I am your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. Find out more about me at my website, which is wordsbyjdk.com, and on my social media feeds, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you should find me rather easily. Would love to chat with you. Hear your thoughts on the show, maybe get some ideas for future ones, and really just talk about whatever you'd like to talk about. So welcome, everyone, to episode 53, kicking off year two of this show. Really excited about that. And it's for January 10th, 2022. And today's uh, show is titled Fearing Fear Itself. Fearing Fear Itself. And I'll tell you why I called it that in just a minute. But the haiku to go with it goes this way. To live from fear is to poison oneself instead of breathing the truth. To live from fear is to poison oneself instead of breathing the truth. And um, jumping right into a discussion today about uh, what was sort of the big remembrance event of the last week or so. The, uh, The January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, which was one year ago this past week. Uh, That is going to be the set piece for what I'm going to talk about today. But as you'll see, um, it'll talk about something uh, a bit larger than that. Before we get to that, though, once again, I must take a moment to thank the sponsor of this show, Airway Science for Kids, uh, for their wonderful support and continuing support in this new year of this show. And uh, Airway Science for Kids is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth in aviation and aerospace. It does it through a combination of in-house programs that they can do on site uh, or virtually, as well as working as a facilitation organization with other entities, whether it's other educational institutions, other nonprofits, uh, government entities, you name it, to help provide all the resources that underserved youth need to improve their own lives, to improve that of their families and that of their communities. Uh, It's amazing work. Uh, I love everything they do and how they do it. And you can find out more about them at their website, which is airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or you can reach out to them directly via email using info at airsci.org. So thanks to uh, to Airway Science for Kids yet again. Okay, so we're going to kick off the second year of this show by looking back one year. Um, literally a year before this show, like a week before this show started last year, the insurrection at the Capitol happened. And uh, I just... Kick, launching a new show, I didn't feel like I could really jump into it then. I, I'm not sure that was the right decision in, in retrospect, but I am going to talk about it today. Uh, a year ago when that happened, um, I wrote about it, uh, a piece on wordsbyjdk.com. If you go there and you click on the link that says My Sunday Post, you can find an article called And in America. And I wrote about the insurrection then. I kind of reviewed it over the weekend, and I still agree with me <laughs> with what I said a year ago. Um, but in that, I focused, I focused the discussion around a quote from Tom Hanks in the movie A League of Their Own. Um, it's about baseball, but I applied it to democracy. And the quote is when he says to Gina Davis's character, he says about baseball, it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, then everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. Now, he was talking about baseball, and I applied it in that piece to um, keeping democracy healthy. And uh, like I said, I still believe with what I said. Uh, but I'd like to sort of elaborate or go in a little bit of a different direction from that uh, today to talk a little bit about hmm, what I'm thinking about, at least, 
as uh, I, the year has gone by and, and what I think it all means uh, for us today. A year ago, of course, those who did storm the Capitol justified what they were doing as a difficult thing, right? A hard thing. Um, they, they justified it as patriotic. But really what it was to me, at least, uh, was the most vivid example yet we have of people succumbing to fear in this body politic, of refusing to be on the losing side of the quote-unquote heart of democracy for fear of what that would mean for them. Anger, particularly political anger, is usually driven by fear, fear of some sort. Now, I'm not going to really talk specifically about those who stormed the Capitol or really at any length about the ongoing investigations into the insurrection, except to say this, just to make it clear. An insurrection certainly it was, uh, but it fits the definition of a coup of a coup attempt, and the ongoing investigation into it should determine the degree to which it was one or the other, spontaneous or planned out. Now, whatever the case, the truth of what happened should be put out there publicly. Anybody responsible for it should be put on speedy trial under the law, (laughs) and it should be done as transparently as possible. Some people have dismissed it more as a riot than a strategic coup, Uh, but like I said, whichever one it is, it's bad. And... Everybody should be interested in the truth of which one it actually was. Now, with that established, I'm going to put my historian's hat on here to start off uh, the day and talk a little bit about this. What I've been thinking about a year down the road um, is FDR's inaugural speech in 1933 when he was elected president for the first time. And the country was in the midst of the Great Depression, its worst economic calamity in its history. And, of course, the famous line from that speech is, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Hence the title of today's program. Now, he was speaking, he was speaking certainly around the economic collapse of the time, which was profound. But what that economic collapse had done, of course, had triggered larger crises of confidence in all other areas of American life as well. All the way down to the individual confidence of individual Americans to do things, basic things like put a roof over their heads, provide food for their families, food for themselves, to get a quality education, to have career opportunities, to develop savings for the future. All those basic fundamental things that Americans had cared about, the economic collapse had cast so much more about that into doubt. And of course, in the 1930s, with what was going on in the rest of the world, where there was economic depressions going on in all the democratic nations, And it was countries like Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, fascist Italy, and the communist Soviet Union that had full employment. Democracy and capitalism were indeed in deep question in the 1930s. And so for FDR to say, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, not only was a bold claim to make in light of the reality of the time, but it showed a fundamental confidence that he had that Americans could withstand and work through this larger depression, and he was under no illusion that it was going to be a long-term thing. Now, in 1933, FDR believed that the depression had provided an unprecedented opportunity for the American government to step in to protect and enhance the social welfare of everyday Americans in a way that had never been done by an American government before. And that that was to do things like create job programs, bail out banks, uh, develop infrastructure, but above all to restore confidence among individual Americans in themselves, and by doing so, restore confidence in America as a whole. 
And it was a long process. All of this fit under his larger program called the New Deal. And of course, that was full of successes and failures. Historians to this day still debate how effective the New Deal really was in ending the Depression. But it did end. Um, and what most agree on is that World War II ended it. <laughs> Which on one hand, thank you for ending the Depression. But wow, that does not... It's not really how we want big major crises to end with a global conflagration uh, that somehow fixes everything on the other end. So the reason why I'm thinking about that is not because that speech is not because we face a similar situation today. Contrary to the pithy saying that says that history does not re repeat itself. No historian I know really believes that. What history can show are patterns. What history can show are proclivities among humans. And I do think we are facing another fearing fear itself era in where we are today as a country. We see it everywhere. Fear tends to be a dominating thread either right on the surface or underlying it just about everywhere we look. In public discourse about anything on the news, in social media, and you pick a subject around everything from vaccines to the future of, of democracy in America, to questions of public health, the role that government should play in public life. And, and it's not just about the coronavirus epidemic. That's just kind of added fuel to the fire. But here's the big difference from 1933. Unlike in 1933 when FDR was saying the government has a role to play and can be the confidence builder, the government is not in a position to be that today. For better or for worse, for right or for wrong, Government is not being looked to in the same way, with the same level of trust, same level of desperation, perhaps, that, that people were looking at it in the 1930s. So government entities, leadership entities at the political level, as we all know, are either being embraced by people or outright rejected by people. There isn't necessarily a lot in between. And nobody has yet captured rhetorically what needs to be done the way FDR seemed to capture it in the 1930s. And yet, I would say, and this is just a suggestion for us to think about, and certainly it's debatable in its finer points, you could argue that we are in the midst of just as much of a depression as we were in the 1930s, only in a very different way. It's not an economic depression, and it's not even a moral depression. Despite what some corners of the American religious and political arenas may say, I don't think it's that. Morals are very fluid. <laughs> and are, in the end, quite subjective beyond basic things like don't kill other people, don't steal things, blah, 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 blah. The rest of it tends to be very, very localized, and we tend to justify it by saying it's always been that way. It's not a moral depression or an economic depression. But for the sake of framing it, let's call it a social depression, okay? a social one. In some ways, it feels like a reflection to me of the 1930s economic depression, where economic flatlining caused drops in everything else. But the reflection of that today is we have this social depression made up of all those ingredients I just listed, causing flatlining in other areas, including economics, particularly when we're considering things like equity, right? debt relief, adequate housing, education, this weird situation in which there's plenty of jobs and plenty of people, but underemployment and for all these things. It's kind of like the bizarro Great Depression, the flip side of it. Right, for those of you who are Seinfeld fans, it's the George Costanza, the exact opposite right, of that depression, and yet just as real. Now, we can identify, and plenty of people have tried to 
identify what might be at the root cause of this social depression. Where did it come from? And we can certainly identify things like we are reaping the whirlwind for years of ineffective teaching about history and civics, for example. You hear that one a lot. But even that discussion has become sort of subjective rhetorical war zones divided up between whatever groups we want to divide them up between, blue and red, left or right, right, conservative or liberal, other labels that no one really knows what they mean anymore, right, other than sort of the whatever one's view of it might be for themselves. What I would suggest, though, is while those, those certainly have a place, and as a historian, I like that his, I want history to be taught fully and honestly and truthfully um, from a number of different perspectives because I think that's where it's most effective. As important as that is, I think what's actually underlying this even deeper than just that is a social depression based in our disconnection from ourselves and from each other. It's, a di- it's having forgotten our basic humanity. In that sense, it's not history we've neglected nearly as much as our own psychology and our health on a macro and an individual level. And so this is where my historian hat kind of gets taken off and here's my human being who cares a lot hat comes on. This is first and foremost a social crisis, I would argue. And the January 6th insurrection is just a very, very vivid example of that. But it's a social crisis born out of the loss of connection with reality. And that comes from having lost connection with ourselves and with each other as a result. And this isn't exclusive to one side or the other. Politically, socially, religiously, ethnically, economically or another. This is present everywhere. Fear tends to dominate. Fear of what might happen next. Not knowing what is going to happen next. Fear of not being able to control various outcomes. The fear driving us to try to identify who is to blame for something. Fear leading people to trumpet simple solutions to complex problems. Seeing everything as needing to be solved in the next election cycle. Right? Otherwise, it's a catastrophe. All of that has just become endemic and died in the wool in our discussions these days. Everybody seems to want to find the quick answer, the quick point of blame, the quickest solution so they can get away as quickly as possible from that fear, from that anxiety, and I would say from the responsibility of needing to do anything different for themselves. And I include myself in this. Like the Great Depression, which FDR understood and anybody else at the time understood, there is no short-term fix to this, and yet everybody seems to want it. And everybody seems to be pointing the finger at someone else for what to do next or who's to blame than rather taking a look at themselves. So what prevents this? What prevents this reckoning with ourselves or this close look at ourselves? Again, easy culprits can be identified. But there are some factors to think about. It's interesting. For one example, just to pick one, take a look at addiction. You know, it's funny. We focus on the deaths caused by addiction, opioid addiction in particular, which is at a crisis level in this country, alcohol, addictive behaviors, you name it. We focus on the deaths in all of those, right? And since 2012, about 900,000 deaths to opioids in the United States, which is an astronomical number. And of course, we do the same with COVID, right? Currently, 800,000 plus deaths due to COVID since the pandemic began. And those are devastating numbers. Every single one of them, sad, tragedy, I don't care from whatever direction it comes. 
the loss of those lives is sad and in all those cases, you can argue, unnecessary. But here's the thing. If we only focus on that and say it's just about those deaths, we eliminate the discussion of where something can actually be done. And that's among the people for addiction, for example, who are still suffering from it, which is many times higher than the people who are dying from it, sadly. So if there are 800,000 deaths, and let's say there's 10 people still addicted for every person who's died, do the math. That's a lot of people who, because of opioid addiction, are disconnected from themselves, are isolating from others, lashing out at others, suffering immensely, maybe bringing about suffering in others. Same thing with people who've lost loved ones to COVID. That has an effect. <laughs> that has a long-term effect. That suffering, that grief, and if they don't necessarily handle their grief the right way and maybe they go to medicating it themselves, it perpetuates that problem. And because of the environment that we live in where everybody's looking for somebody to blame, somebody to, somebody to point out, somebody to sue, somebody to attack, you have more and more of that disconnection from things. So those numbers matter, and we don't necessarily know those full numbers. What we do know is that they're in the millions. Addiction, and I have some experience with this, leads to self-loathing, isolation, blaming, despair, victimization, lashing out at others. The toll, the emotional toll, the spiritual toll, the physical toll on addicts themselves as well as on the people that they love is real and is a major feeder to this social depression. You can argue in the same way COVID is too. There are other ingredients. Decades of neglect in various areas of American life, as we're really seeing in the last handful of years, particularly around racial issues, equity issues, and around rural life, has contributed to this as well. There are entire sections of American populations that feel like they have been ignored, forgotten, displaced, moved out, not listened to for decades. And just like in a family dynamic, <laughs> if in a family dynamic, a family member is excluded, is targeted, is scapegoated, that causes problems within that family. Not just with that person who's been scapegoated, but with everyone else. And what they're all avoiding is reality. <laughs> the reality is that there is something fundamentally that they are all contributing to that's causing the problem and not paying attention to what the solution might be. And again, this exists across all sides of the political spectrum and social spectrum and economic spectrum. It might look different in each spot, but it's still there. That scapegoat idea is really big. Right? We all do it. This is the fault of fill in the blank. Fill it in. I hear it all the time. And this, I just kept track of this for the last few days. And this is what I heard from various quarters out of people's mouths that I know, off of TV, off of podcasts, you name it. Big business, the 1%, the government, liberals, conservatives, MAGA, BLM, globalists, racism. The list is long and unfortunately not very distinguished. And if any one of them is to blame or holds the key to solving it, if they were just defeated, that seems to be the idea. Identify that, eliminate it somehow, and that'll take care of everything. But that's not reality. 
Yet that seems to be where we want to go because it's a quick fix. We can feel better about ourselves if we're not to blame, if we don't have responsibility, if somebody else needs to change, if somebody else needs to take a good look at themselves, then we don't need to do that. That quick fix, that desire for that, I truly believe is at the heart of this social depression. We want a pill to make ourselves feel better, a weekend retreat that will redefine or redirect our entire life from that point on, a simple explanation for a complex problem that will elevate myself while it demonizes somebody else because you know what, that feels a lot better. (laughs) That reality, I think, is really where really where the answer is and it's going to take a long time to reconnect with that and to grow from that and for a lot of these branches unhealthy branches to die off and wither to start reconnecting with that we have to see several other realities first and it all starts with us seeing it within ourselves here's the first thing i would say we all bear responsibility for doing something about this social depression and that is far more important at this point than finding out who's responsible for starting it in the first place. If there is a fire somewhere, you put the fire out first, and then you investigate it for how it started. You don't just stand there and say, well, this is somebody's somebody's fault. Let's just let this burn. And this will not be solved by one leader, one party, one election, or one moment in time. It's a long-term haul requiring long-term recognition of that reality and investing in it. Just as in individual and mental and physical health work, whether we're doing therapy or starting, starting a new eating regimen or getting exercise, it takes time and regular practice for it to make any changes. It requires each of us to reconnect with ourselves, with our own biases, our own prejudices, our own emotional issues, pretty much our own fears. And by doing that, we can see that in the end, fear by itself is complete BS. It was true in FDR's time, and it is today. Fear by itself. It doesn't mean there aren't things that aren't important. It doesn't mean there aren't threats. What it means is, though, if we only go by fear at the expense of reality, it doesn't matter what quote-unquote solution we come up with. It's not going to work because it won't be based in reality. And then once we do that in ourselves, we have to do the best we can to look beyond all of that and recognize the humanity around us, even among those, and maybe especially among those with whom we disagree about maybe everything. The number one reality that exists, it seems to me, is that we're all living in this together and that we would all be better off if this social depression ended. And the only way that's going to happen is if we get more comfortable with discomfort. And that involves sometimes losing, sometimes suffering setbacks, sometimes having victories be temporary, with being disappointed, with not having quick solutions to things, but not at the expense of robbing each other of our humanity and our shared connection. And if that sounds hard, I bring you back to Mr. Hanks. It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it, but it is to reconnect with ourselves, to take responsibility for our own fear and to do different with others is the only way through this. There's no way around it, under it, over it. It's only through it. No legislation of any kind will do this for us. 
even though obviously some rules are needed for us to coexist peacefully and fairly. Emotional health is key. That starts with each of us. And it is worth fighting for in ourselves, we certainly believe, and in our families and in our communities. Why shouldn't it go further than that? In the end, no one anywhere should be expected to somehow just miraculously change if they are being blamed, scapegoated, targeted, no matter what it is. Accountability and connection go hand in hand. And when we are connected with ourselves and with others, we listen, we absorb, we change, and we see others. It's hard. It involves risk. And it does not mean all will cooperate with this or do what I'm suggesting. But what it can do is as more of us do this over time and we get collectively healthier, it can push those who refuse, who continue to engage in that disconnect and that blaming and that attacking, it pushes them out to the margins where they belong. Instead of letting them live at the heart of what we all seemingly care about, but aren't necessarily taking the right steps to really help. What happened on January 6th was done by a select few, and that is being teased out and better understood as each day goes by. But the roots of it and all that preceded it go back even deeper. And while it may be interesting, particularly from a historian's point of view, to take a look back and see where this all came from, and that has value, in the now, we all bear responsibility for what we do about it. And that has to start with us. As much as we want to tell other, everybody where it needs to start with them, it has to start with us. Being honest with the reality of things like opioids, equity issues, fair job practices, having difficult dialogue, showing mutual respect even when it's hard, listening to learn and not just in order to take turns speaking, curiosity. These are the keys. And we have to find those again within ourselves if we ever want to practice them with others. And it's not up to others to make us do that or provide that chance for us. We can and have to do it for ourselves. Doing it this way is the only way that it will sort of eliminate the popularity of all the things that are driving us nuts. The conspiracy theories, the simple explanations, the blaming. All the air has to be taken out of that by having people see increasingly over time reality and confronting their own fears. The social depression is long and real, but so is the fix, and it is available. And admitting that reality is the key to starting. So what can you do to make that happen? Well, we'll talk about that more in the weeks ahead. And we'll start next week on Martin Luther King Day, when we'll talk a little bit about what that man had in mind for what we might be able to do as far as that's concerned. Until then, I am your host for This Show is All About You, J.D.K. Winnikin. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I hope you found it enlightening and interesting and motivating. And until next week, everyone, chins up.